today on the Lowdown, a Down syndrome podcast. Liv Mariano gives us a lowdown on Down syndrome and autism spectrum disorder. Over to you, Marla and Hannah. Thanks, Danielle. Hi there, and welcome to the Lowdown podcast. I am Hannah Mahmood, the lead OT at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. And joining me is my amazing co-host, Marla Folden, who is a speech-language pathologist at the DSRF. So today we're going to talk about something near and dear to both of us, the dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism spectrum disorder. This topic is hugely important because, in fact, a large number of our students that we see in clinic have a dual diagnosis. And this overlap isn't really well understood in medicine or the greater community. As you can imagine, a dual diagnosis is a huge deal for families and can bring up all sorts of emotions. Some families are relieved to know what is going on, others are devastated, and others are confused um, as to what the whole thing is about. As clinicians, we know this area warrants more research and education, which is why it is a really good focus for today's episode. And today we have the chance to talk through this with one of our colleagues, Liv Mariano, who is an SLP at the DSRF as well. Liv completed her undergraduate degree in speech sciences at Brock University in Ontario, prior to completing her Master's of Science in SLP with a minor in audiology at UBC here in British Columbia. Her undergraduate and master's research focused on applying theater techniques to develop social skills in individuals with social pragmatic difficulties, otherwise known as sort of difficulties with social skills and conversation. And prior to joining the DSRF, she was the creator and facilitator of several improv programs through Community Living and Autism Ontario. In her practice, she applies principles from reference and regulate, social thinking, and cognitive connections. Having a sibling on the spectrum, Liv is passionate about understanding how we can better support people with autism to reach their full potential. Hi, Liv. Welcome to The Lowdown. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me today. We are delighted. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Likewise. Great. Um, Usually, when somebody comes to Lowdown, we start with five secret non-related questions. Are you game? (laughs) I'm game. All right. (laughs) So question number one, do you have a favorite improv show that you like to attend or watch? Oh, that's a really good one. Um, My favorite local one is Mm. the Sunday Service. Oh, I haven't heard of it. What kind of program is (laughs) it? It'll change your life. Um, (laughs) They're probably the best improv troupe, I would say, in Vancouver. Okay. Um, They perform at the Fox Cabaret every Sunday evening. Um, And that's probably my favorite local troupe to watch. Cool. and then I'm also a big fan of like whose line is it anyway? And yeah, kind of like stuff, some of the classics, right? the classics for sure. Stuff. Yeah. Okay, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, question number two: What are you reading right now? Oh God! Um, right now I'm reading a graphic novel called Belonging. Oh. Oh, is it Shantan? I no. think no, no, <laughs> nope. That's a different one. That's Home or something else. Yeah, it's. I can't remember the author. Um, it's for one of the book clubs that I belong to. Um, yeah, it's really good. It's about um, like a German girl's um, going back to like her roots as like what happened after the Second World War mm. and how that kind of affected her and her family. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, cool. I highly recommend. Okay, yeah, it's a good I like thinker. a good graphic novel. Mm-hmm. I'm into it. Uh, question number three. Do you have a de-stress routine after a long day in the old office? (laughs) 
I mean, yeah, I guess I would call it a routine. Yeah. Or <laughs> um, an activity, whatever. Or activity, yeah. yeah. I tend to go home and definitely eat dinner. I'm a big fan of, like, food mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. when I'm stressed. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually like to wind down with, like, sometimes I'll have a glass of wine with dinner or mm-hmm. a beer. Um and I love to go for like walks around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and just hanging with my partner who yeah. tends to distress me and yeah, makes me Great. feel good. So. Perfect. Number four, I'm really excited for this one. <laughs> uh, what is something that you really like to cook? Oh, so I'm Italian and grew up in a very Italian household, so I've been told that my lasagna is quite good, and I think Mm. that's like my go-to when people are coming over. Mm. Um, And I do enjoy making it because it makes like a lot of portions, and I'm a huge (laughs) fan of big portion sizes. Yeah. Um, So I think that's probably like my go-to dish that I make. The only way to eat lasagna is big portions. Oh yeah. As I learned at lunch. As you learned at lunch today, yeah. (laughs) I brought a tiny piece of lasagna for lunch and was very upset about it. (laughs) It just was not enough. Right. Yeah. Should have learned from you. Um, Okay. Last question. What is your favorite thing to drink in the AM before you get to work? Oh. Okay. So I drink. I drink coffee, but. I drink coffee really slowly, yeah. um, and I've been told by my dentist, like, not to do that. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm one of those, like, coffee drinkers who, like, leaves their coffee cup, you know, for hours and then comes back to it later. Um, so, um, yeah, I always kind of have a coffee on the go, but depending on, like, where it is, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I would say definitely coffee, um, just black, don't like any sweet stuff in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of, it gets me going in the morning. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah I could see that. Well, totally. thank you for indulging yeah. us with that. I hope guys. it wasn't as scary as you thought it might be. <laughs> yeah, I felt that one up in my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's jump into our topic for today. And I want to start with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work history with people who have a dual diagnosis of DS and ASD. And what really made you want to know more about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I'm a speech-language pathologist at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation and get the privilege to work with you lovely ladies on a daily basis. Um, And I was just thinking the other day, like it's been just over two years already, which is insane. Mm, Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I just got here some days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But before DSRF, I worked in public health and private practice with individuals with developmental disabilities. Um, many of which had autism or were suspected to have autism. Mm -hmm. And uh, personally, my brother is also on the spectrum. Um, So he was diagnosed with Asperger's when that was still a diagnosis. Um, Now we know that it's just kind of a broader category of Mm -hmm. autism spectrum disorder. Um, But I've always kind of had this interest in autism because of that Mm -hmm. um, and wanting to understand more. And so when I lived in Ontario, um, I got involved with Autism Ontario and Community Living, uh, where I facilitated improv groups with teens and adults with Down syndrome, um, autism. Some of them had like social anxiety. Um, and you kind of see this like transformation in them and their improvement in social skills. Um, and so my research interest kind of fell in studying those effects of yeah how drama and improv mm-hmm. um, affect the social skills of individuals with 
um, social communication difficulties. Um, and so when I started at DSRF, it just so happened that a large majority of my students had a dual diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back and realized like at any given time, I would say a third to almost half of my students yep. mm-hmm. had a dual diagnosis, Same. which mm-hmm. is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I remember reading when I first got here, like, I think it's about 12% of our students have a dual diagnosis of ASD. Um, so seeking information kind of started out as like a necessity to better serve these families um, because it is a part of like our day-to-day mm-hmm. um, work with them. Um, but it's kind of evolved to like more of like a passion and a huge interest area for me because mm-hmm. it's yeah just so common within this population. Yeah, it is super common and not not known that it's common, which mm-hmm. is always surprising to me. So we get feedback from families saying like, I feel so isolated and alone. I don't think there's any family in my situation. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Yes. Like yeah. half of the people I see here are in your situation and actually think the same thing you do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found the exact same thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It is It is an interesting sort of phenomenon that we see here. I think half of your caseload, roughly, Hannah, yes. also has a dual diagnosis, yeah. which doesn't really match with the population level research that's been done. Now, mind you, some of the newer research puts the estimate a little bit higher, Mm -hmm. but still it doesn't match. And I suspect that it is in part because kids with a dual diagnosis need more support overall. So we don't see a really representative sample of everybody with Down syndrome. We see kids who need maybe more help than others. Yeah. Let's go, let's backtrack a wee bit. So many people don't even know that you can actually have both diagnoses. In fact, doctors used to say that you couldn't, which Mm -hmm. is a big source of confusion for a lot of people. So why do you think people don't know this? What's going on? Yeah, great question. Um, Like you said, yeah, there was this like early view that autism was rare with people with Down syndrome. Um, And it was believed that like the two couldn't exist together. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, parents were originally told that their child had Down syndrome with like a severe to profound maybe cognitive impairment, but like nothing was really looked into um, or further investigated. Um, But today we know that's not the case, that a person can have both Down syndrome and autism. Um, And in fact, it's estimated that people with, or autism in individuals with um, Down syndrome, it's like 10 to 25 times more likely to occur um, and is more common than the general population. Um, And I think like, this could be for a few different reasons. Um, One is unlike Down syndrome, which is like conclusively objectively diagnosed with a blood test, Mm -hmm. autism spectrum disorder is a subjective diagnosis um, based upon observed behaviors, um, social communication patterns. So in order to be diagnosed with autism, a person needs to be observed as they develop and present with these symptoms that are consistent with autism. Um, And I think like even though these symptoms of autism need to be present from early childhood, um, I think they're sometimes harder to detect in our students. Totally. Um, For a few different reasons. Like I wonder if because like development is slower, these signs might not, they might not show or be as clear until like later on. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also research comparing like children with autism and Down syndrome to children with just autism. Um, And results of these studies have pointed to like a very distinct autism profile for them. Um, Because when compared to individuals with just autism, um, they actually have strengths in imitation and gestures Mm -hmm. than what's typically kind of thought. Um, So 
yeah, some, you know, the researchers have said, like, maybe that's because um, Down syndrome presents with relative strengths in nonverbal communication. So it almost acts, acts as like a buffer or like a social boost yeah. uh, for these kids. And um, but it doesn't really present as like typical autism um, mm-hmm. all the time. Which makes it hard, right, totally. for people on the diagnostic panel yes. or the assessment panel. And then for us as clinicians, too, we'll often kind of have this question mark in the back of our mind, like, mm-hmm. do we think there's something else and something more going on or maybe not? And we're kind of waiting to see what other skills are developed and yes. added. And then is there going to be sort of a spiky profile? Because yeah. that's what we're looking for to send somebody for an autism assessment. Totally. Or you know, are things going to kind of level out and are we just at a plateau at the moment? It's it's really hard to tell when these guys are young. Yes. For sure. And I think sometimes like people don't know what signs and symptoms are consistent with like autism yeah. versus yeah. what's yeah. consistent with Down syndrome. Um, and as we know, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about like there is develop or overlap between the mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. Um, and it can go under detected because of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like anecdotally, my brother who um, was born deaf Um, a lot of the signs that we were kind of seeing, like not responding to his name or, um, you know, having difficulty making eye contact or making friends was kind of attributed to, oh, well, he's deaf. And (laughs) and it was kind of like pushed aside when, um, you know, actually as he got to develop, we're like, no, something else is different here. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of, yeah, prompted us to explore it more. Um, So I think like many children with Down syndrome or, you know, deaf children can demonstrate some behaviors that are similar to autism, but these impairments should occur um, in the context of some like really critical, strong social skills um, that are appropriate for their developmental level. Yeah. 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 Very well put. I agree. Um, In your experience, how does this second diagnosis impact families? Because it's a really big deal. We should not Mm -hmm. sort of... minimize it at all it's a huge deal to get this second diagnosis or even to go for the assessment and go through the process it is i think that second diagnosis like impacts families in many different ways um like henna you mentioned like some families feel a sense of relief when they get a diagnosis Mm -hmm. um you know they could feel like they understand their child their behavior um know how to like support them better or feel like now they have like funding for various things Mm -hmm. which is a good relief Um, I remember one family saying to me, like, he's still the same person. It just Mm -hmm. helps explain some of the behaviors we were seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for some families, I think, you know, where maybe it's less expected, they feel almost like a second wave of grief. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one family had said to me, like, we feel like we were just getting a handle on Down syndrome and now this was added to our plate. Um, or feel like it's kind of like another added label for their child. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you can feel both at, you know, different times during that process. Um, And in my experience, like it's extremely variable and extremely individual, even within the same family, you can Mm -hmm. feel different things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and we actually conducted like a survey earlier this year to see like how DSRF can better support our families. Um, who have children with yeah Down syndrome and autism, um, which came from those discussions with our families, like we said, where um, you know they feel sometimes a sense of like isolation, like yeah. they don't really belong to like the Down syndrome community fully, or don't belong to like the autism community fully. They're kind of like a part of these two camps, um, when really a lot of them had lots of similarities and shared experiences raising a child with both Down syndrome and autism. Um, 
so it kind of shed light a lot on like what the majority of our families feel um so i can kind of talk about that survey if you want and kind of shed light on that Mm -hmm. experience i think it'll help listeners out there who are probably feeling like that Mm -hmm. maybe feel like okay i'm not on my own here feeling this way um yeah so the survey what it kind of showed us was that a majority of the families felt reported like they were um, they felt more confident understanding down syndrome rather than autism Mm -hmm. um, which could be because maybe like the autism diagnosis came later yeah yeah, reports of like feeling isolated or alone navigating the system Um, lots of them saying like they felt overwhelmed when this kind of diagnosis um, was put on them Um, and there was also an overwhelming response that they perceived raising a child with autism and down syndrome was more challenging than just down syndrome alone Mm -hmm. Um, and in terms of support there was a huge need for more information and support so whether that's like a parental support group or um, some parents said they would rather they want to understand signs and symptoms more um, which kind of resulted us in creating like an ASD um, information tab on our website with some resources, um, which is like kind of the first step in our plan to um, support these families because it's a huge need. Um, and then more is to come later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that support piece is really important because in my conversations with families, they've said that they can even if they have they're taking time to get a handle on this additional diagnosis navigating the system is very stressful so they get this big binder with information that are pretty much and i've seen this binder it's pretty much like photocopies of different things all Mm -hmm. put together so not only are you dealing with this new thing that you kind of have to navigate towards but now you have to figure out how to work the system like where's the funding how do i you know if i need a behavior consultant how do i do that so like how are those things gonna it's great to have that additional funding Mm -hmm. but like how do i use it and i find that a lot of parents have told me that that is a source of stress for them as well just trying to figure that out absolutely and for people who are listening from further away in bc at least Mm -hmm. the funding sources are separate Mm -hmm. for kids with down syndrome alone and kids with autism And so if you have a kid with both, you technically get both kinds of funding, but they're different government agencies. And knowing what services and supports go with which thing and who covers what is really, really complicated. And it doesn't apply to that many people. So there's not that much information. And a lot of the work, uh, at least for autism funding, is on the parents. They have to fill out the paperwork. They have to request this. They have to upload this. So it's definitely kind of... Like, okay, here is the information and you're on your way. I don't mm-hmm. really see much follow-up, much like support from that side to yeah. be like, hey, mm-hmm. let check in with you to see how things are going. So totally. I think there's definitely a gap there as well. Mm-hmm. And even from the survey, I remember a lot of families being like, like, what do you need for support? And they would be like, a secretary, like yeah. just to keep yeah. track and like, exactly. yeah, help understand, yeah, yeah, where to. As if like managing appointments and exactly. things for kids with Down syndrome isn't enough in terms yeah. of medical, yeah. then you have this added thing on top. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so Liv, you mentioned that there is, you know, a lot of overlap between Down syndrome and autism. So let's talk a little bit about that first. So what clinical signs kind of fall into that category of things mm-hmm. that are common between both diagnoses? Yeah, that's a really good question um, because there are some clinical signs that are similar. Um, so if we talk about like play and behavior first, mm-hmm. um, a lot of children with Down syndrome as well as autism prefer like sameness and insist on routines. Um, that's why they do so well with you know schedules and yeah when their routines kept the same 
Um, many have like restricted interests, so they might know like a lot about <laughs> a certain topic, um, or very yeah, this interest area is very intense. Which you know, in our therapy sessions, we use to our advantage sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, restricted interests. Um, they could engage in some repetitive play and behavior, um, which we often see. I have a kiddo right now who he doesn't have autism, but his go-to when we're playing is to make things fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we're working on, you know, expanding mm-hmm. our play and, and things. Mm-hmm. Um, we could also see challenging or problem behaviors, um, you know, like protesting or difficulties with transitions. That's very common in both populations. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and even though, you know, like I mentioned, uh, social communication is considered a relative strength for children with Down syndrome, um, they do have challenges in that area. So some things like issues with uh, perspective taking or the ability to take reciprocal turns um, also compared to when compared to typical peers they have um, difficulty with eye contact as well mm-hmm. um, in terms of like speech and language skills um, we see limited expressive language or stereotype repetitive utterances in both populations um, and in terms of their understanding of language um, they might not always respond to their name, which could be, you know, related to hearing loss or directions, especially if they're too long or complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also see some other things like um, it's common to have sleep and sensory issues, as well as mental health needs like anxiety, um, obsessive compulsive disorder or depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just want to clarify for everybody listening. If this sounds like your child, it doesn't mean that they have a dual diagnosis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is... The common areas between both diagnoses. So even yes. if your child just has Down syndrome, they might check every box on that list that we just yeah. talked about. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point to clarify um, that they can demonstrate these behaviors that are similar to autism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but but it doesn't mean that they have autism. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk a little bit about what are some of those clinical markers that maybe would point to. Uh, the need for a, an autism assessment, something that is maybe very autism specific. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So we're often asked that by parents, you know, whether we think their child might have autism or whether they should get assessed. Um, so these would be things that I would consider like more consistent with autism mm-hmm. rather than in Down syndrome, um, indicating that there is something more at play. Um, and I should say too, like the more signs that we observe, I would say like the more a referral is warranted. Um, and for us as speech language pathologists, we're usually looking and picking up on things that fall in the, the domains of like play and social communication. Um, so one thing would be, you know, if they have little interest in communicating with others. So you might see this, you know, so social withdrawal or kind of like an indifference if people are in the room or mm-hmm. wanting to play with them. Um, one parent, you know, described it as I usually have to work harder to get them to interact or play with me, mm-hmm. which I thought was like a good way mm-hmm. of, um, yeah, mm-hmm. how you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we also see less, um, it's called social referencing or joint attention. So all that means is, you know, when two people have a shared focus on something, um, does the child shift their attention from the toy to the person um, and kind of check on or check in with you to see what you think about that? Um, or say if you enter the room, do they yeah. look up to look at you? Um, or when they need help, you know, do they turn and look at you? Um, and joint attention is a foundational skill for learning and often corresponds with 
their developmental level in children with Down syndrome. So for individuals with autism, they might do it less or have less of that back and forth, like what we call gaze shifting between Mm -hmm. like objects and people. Um, And usually that looks like more looking at the object. Yeah, I would say Most often. Mm -hmm. So more really intense interest in a toy Mm -hmm. or an aspect of the environment, sometimes a light or something moving and less checking to see if you think that's also cool like they do. Yeah. Um, Yeah, or sort of, how would I describe it? Sort of like a... Because I don't want to say indifference because I think our students with dual diagnosis Mm -hmm. still care if you're there or not. So it's not about they don't care if you're there, but they might not acknowledge that they know that you're there now. Like if you walk into a room. They might have that awareness, right? but they're not actually outwardly outwardly showing. showing. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they might not do the quick checkup and Mm -hmm. look, which you probably don't even realize that you do all the time when somebody walks Mm -hmm. into a room, but you do. That's a really good point. Yeah. 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 Yeah kind of those like innate things that we don't really think about until it doesn't happen Mm -hmm. um totally um there's also like if a child has a lack of verbal communication and this is coupled with like no attempts at using other modes to be understood so if a child isn't using say like signs or gestures Mm -hmm. to supplement um yeah their verbal language so for instance um we look to see you know our kids pointing to things around the room um not only to request things but are they you know to show us like Mm -hmm. they think that's cool too um do they bring you things to show you um do they wave at others um you know shaking their head yes or no kind of these like gestures mm-hmm. um you you know children with down syndrome usually have relative strengths with these nonverbal communication um tools like gestures and facial expressions mm-hmm. um so we tend to yeah look at that as well um yeah, mm-hmm. you know, facial expressions, are they appropriate to the situation? Do they yeah. add valuable meaning to your interactions? Yeah, um, I think that that's a really, that's a key piece mm-hmm. because sometimes my students with a dual diagnosis have really extreme facial expressions mm-hmm. is how I describe it, mm-hmm. or like stereotyped facial expressions almost. Yes. Like they have a surprise face yes. <laughs> and it's really big and it's really dramatic, but it doesn't fit with what you're the doing. situation, yeah. <laughs> the context is, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. exactly. You know, but they're yeah. trying, they're trying something, yes, t- but it's not quite matching yeah. up with what would be warranted in that moment. And from your guys's perspective, in being experts in social communication, do you think they're picking this up from another situation that they've seen, and they're like, "Let me try it out"? Like, what do you think the reasoning could be from their perspective as to why they're doing that? I think there's a lot of reasons it can happen. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think it's from TV yeah, and mimicking a favored character mm-hmm. and cartoons yeah. tend to be really exaggerated. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes I can, I'm like, oh, that seems like a Elmo face or whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, okay. Yeah. You picked that up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes yeah. I wonder if it's just like a little bit of a misinterpreted thing that somebody's tried to teach them how to do, Mm -hmm. right? We've been working on like a social routine and how we smile, but it's just like the ability to sort of gauge how much of a smile would be needed Mm -hmm. is not there. There's like no nuance there. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that looks like, yeah. It's like extremely charming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Another thing like that might be um, 
yeah, consistent with autism. So development is slower than normal um, in autism and Down syndrome, but in Down syndrome, it follows like a normal sequence, mm-hmm. just at a slower rate. Mm-hmm. So children learn language, you know, first by listening to people around them, then they'll try out, you know, single words and then two words and three words, they start making sentences and so on and so forth. Um, in autism, sometimes what we see is their development doesn't always follow this normal sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes we see that a child, you know, can rehearse maybe a whole song or repeat like a whole sentence. Um, and usually it's said in, you know, the exact same way or like they hear how they hear other people say it, mm-hmm. um, but they don't make up their own sentences or use single words Um, or combine these single words together to make their own kind of novel sentences. Um, So that's kind of a sign if we see they kind of like jump um, Mm -hmm. a step. Um, The other thing that we sometimes see in terms of language development in autism is sometimes you see like a regression in their development, whether that be in like cognitive language or social abilities. So that again would be like Mm -hmm. another indicator. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. Let's talk more about those because for mm-hmm. me, those are both really big signs. If I'm working with a student yeah. who is essentially nonverbal, not saying any words, and then the first thing they say is a sentence, for me, that's a huge red flag because that is nowhere near the typical developmental sequence that we would expect. Yeah. I mean, we usually expect some like ah ah ba ba babbling and yes. vowels, and then we get to <laughs> maybe then, some single words, exactly. and I kind of that's the process that most kids have to go through. But, you know, if the first thing the kid ever says is, I want pizza, please. Yes. For me, that's, that's a really big one. Totally. And yeah. on the other side of that, too, given what we know about the trajectories of autism, some portion of the population of people with autism, and I don't think we really know why yet, according to research, will develop in sort of a seemingly typical developmental sequence and then they just lose skills Mm -hmm. and it can't really be attributed to anything else in the environment because kids with Down syndrome are prone to regression too if there's a major life stress etc but if skills are just disappearing Mm -hmm. we wonder about that Mm -hmm. we've seen that with some of our kids here for sure Mm -hmm. oh yeah unexplained yeah yeah Yeah. which can be really yeah disheartening that's really hard Mm -hmm. I mean that's really really sad Mm -hmm. and like parents don't have any warning that that's coming and in fact they often yeah. think things are going great yeah mm-hmm. and yeah. then all of a sudden yeah we couldn't Something we like can't that. do it anymore yeah, yeah. definitely mm-hmm. um some other things might be like you might see treating people as like almost like an object so they might you know grab your hand as a tool yeah. <laughs> to like push something so mm-hmm. usually that's yeah um, one sign that might be um, there or um, there are like reported increased rates of sometimes those like odd behaviors of autism like smelling objects flapping higher rates of um, impulsivity or like hyperactivity mm-hmm. um, so sometimes like self-injurious behaviors mm-hmm. um, and often there's like higher rates of frequency or severity of these challenging behaviors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be something Let's talk a little bit about hand as tool, just so that everybody understands it. What we Mm -hmm. mean by that is in typical development, when a child wants something from you, they look at your face, and even if they don't have words, they look at your face and then point to the thing that they want, or gesture to the thing that they want, or make some kind of noise to indicate I'm mad, or I want that, or I'm done with that, or whatever. Um, And for some children with autism, 
what happens instead is that they don't look at your face, but they just get straight down to business. They grab your hand and mm-hmm. like, let's get this done. Mm-hmm. I want your hand because my hand can't do it. I want your hand to open this door. I want your hand to get this toy. I want your hand to open my raisins. That kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. And I think Liv and I, you may know the, the shared client that we had. You, Liv had given me this really good example where you guys are playing with dolls and you were pretending like yes. the doll was hurt. And correct me if I'm if I'm getting this story wrong, but this little dude, pretty much, instead of using the doll's hands to pretend like the doll's crying, he actually used his hands on the doll's eyes to pretend like, oh, you know. Mm-hmm. So like, is that kind of similar to what you guys are talking about? Like, maybe not necessarily using someone else's hand, but not, you know. Not necessarily yeah. understanding the, the point of hands related to the person. Context of mm-hmm. the yeah. player, right? Yeah. yeah. He's using That's his a- hands instead of the doll's hands. Yeah. 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 It's totally. tricky for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And it Definitely. often is seen as like this very quirky and cute thing. And it absolutely is both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, it's also a sign that maybe you want to go for an autism assessment. Yeah. 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 And it doesn't make it a bad thing. No, right? no for sure. I still just, think it's awesome and information. wonderful. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll gladly be their pointer. Or yes. like, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and the other thing I'll mention too, like in terms of their play. So yeah, we started mm-hmm. talking about play, um, which got me thinking like um, another thing that we would look for is, you know, how do they play alone? How do they play with peers? Mm. You know, how do they play with you? Um, usually what we see in kids with autism is a lack of this symbolic or pretend play. Um, it's often labeled as um, like less functional play. And what I mean by that is um, toys aren't really played with in the way that they're intended to be played with. Mm-hmm. So for example, if I have um, you know a car, instead of pretending to drive it, I might spin the wheels or I might you know, line them up or um, repetitively open and close throw the them. door, yeah. throw them, <laughs> throw them. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. in a very kind of cause and effect way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're more usually interested in, yeah, the parts of the objects rather than using them in their intended way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have usually difficulty moving past the stage without some support mm-hmm. with their play. Um, but that's also kind of something we see is if, yeah, a child isn't kind of moving past that cause and effect mm-hmm. um, level of play. Absolutely. And cause and effect play is an expected level of play exactly. that all children will go through. Yeah. And it's sort of considered to be one of the first levels of play where you're exploring your environment and seeing what happens if I do this? What happens mm-hmm. if I do that? Um, and our students with a dual diagnosis have difficulty going past that or they might take toys that are not really intended for that and make it into that mm-hmm. you know yeah. so I had one student for a long time and we were working on play skills so we had our pirate ship something that he was interested in Lego pieces but the pirate ship was getting used as a cause and effect sort of launching pad because <laughs> there was a spring flag and he would just use it oh. to fling things yeah. Yeah. not really understanding the play aspect of let's play pirates yes. right so yes. he's playing with example. the toy it's not like he's avoiding it but he's not engaging with it as a pirate toy or playing with it just that one way right yeah cuz yes. i do i have noticed that with some of my kiddos too that a lot of the play is like in and out like mm-hmm. putting something Slotting. in and taking something oh, yeah. out right like that's pretty much it like you try any other way but no this is one very like 
predictable way that I know how to play, and that's what I'm going to stick to. Mm -hmm. so. Totally. Yeah. And that would be the reason that we have so many slotting games here. Yes, at the exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there so are many most in and out popular. Exists. It's a need. Games. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that make noise. So they have some form of, like, Feedback. as Liv mentioned, like a cause and effect yeah. thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really good point. Totally. Things disappearing into other things, mm -hmm. right? All those games where you feed mm -hmm. the whatever, and then yes. the food is gone. Yeah. 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 Popular choice. <laughs> Um, okay, so we're going to take a quick break um, and we will come back with Liv and we'll talk a little bit more about the ASD assessment process and um, jump a little bit into therapy and how we can help. Show the world you love someone with Down syndrome. DSRF Down Syndrome's workshop is stocked with shirts, baby clothes, bags, and more. Whether you're looking for World Down Syndrome Day products, DSRF brand merchandise or general Down syndrome items, we have what you're looking for. Love Live on 21st chromosome and Down syndrome, Drake lives at dsrf.org slash shop. My name is Andrew. I am the photographer. Photos are my interest because I love scenes. It makes me feel very close to people. My photo cards are on my Etsy shop through Andrew's eyes at dsrf.org slash Andrew. Don't forget to watch my video through Andrew's eyes on YouTube. Welcome back to the Lowdown Podcast. We're here talking to Liv Mariano about all things Down syndrome and autism. So Liv, before we continue, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who actually makes that autism diagnosis? Is it the speech therapist, the OT, the doctor? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I will say that, you know, when your child goes for an autism assessment, it's a team of professionals that do the assessment process mm -hmm. um, and they all kind of give their input and their little piece to their developmental profile. Um, but ultimately, it's up to um, a developmental pediatrician or psychologist mm -hmm. that usually makes the final call. Um, but um, yeah, like I said, it's kind of a team approach um, just so then they can holistically kind of see where your child is at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like from your perspective, you had mentioned earlier that you could, you know, look for signs that warrant a referral so you could give your input exactly. from what you've noticing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. We can't make the diagnosis here and you can't just go to any doctor and get this diagnosis it's usually quite a specialized panel and they kind of do it full time yeah like that's yeah. their whole job is to do those assessments yeah because yeah. um, it's a pretty in-depth process, process to get yeah. an assessment when you look at sort of the assessment pack it comes yes. in tubs mm -hmm. it's not yes. like <laughs> a piece of paper it's like you five rubber maids it's not a questionnaire <laughs> yeah. only exactly yeah. exactly yeah. Yeah. great thank you for clearing that up for our listeners so Liv why would we even care about getting an ASD assessment? Like what would anyone get out of it? For sure, yeah, like why bother anyway? Mm -hmm. um, that's a really good question. Um, an accurate diagnosis, I would say, is important for many different reasons. Um, it doesn't you know, change who your child is, but it changes the level of support they'll receive. Mm -hmm. um, and getting an accurate diagnosis could mean access to funding and more services for things like behavior consultants, SLP, 
um, OT, PT, um, and the earlier the better. So we know from research that early detection of autism is important for appropriate intervention and outcomes. Mm -hmm could also help improve, you know, educational and behavioral outcomes. Um, and wait lists are long. So sometimes I always tell families, like, even though we can't say for certain, I'd recommend speaking to their pediatrician about getting a referral um, because wait lists are long. Um, and so when we see these concerns, we might want to start to think about getting on it, you know, just in case. And mm -hmm. we can always take our child off if these concerns you know, it's no longer a concern, but right. yeah. um, I do encourage families to talk to their pediatrician if they have any concerns. Definitely, mm -hmm. yeah. and I mean, we mean these lineups are really long, like over a year, mm -hmm. so certainly things might change in that time and you might not be worried about yeah, it anymore, yeah. but what we want to avoid is a family feeling guilty or sort of kicking themselves, thinking, oh, I should have got on that yeah. last year when totally. it first got brought up, now it's worse. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we're going to have to wait another year or pay out of pocket this exorbitant totally. amount. Yeah. And I think, too, like, even though it's called, you know, the Autism Assessment Network, I like to remind families that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're going to get the diagnosis or not. But regardless, you're going to it's going to guarantee an increased understanding of your child mm -hmm. um, and their unique profile, you know, and the strategies that work for them. Um, and I think sometimes too, when you, we think of autism, we think about and focus on the challenges when there's actually a lot of strengths that mm -hmm. they could shed light on. Mm -hmm. um, that, yeah, knowing their profile, you know, their learning profile better um, could help us, you know, understand what's going to help them in school, what's going to help them in the community. Um, like a lot of our students with autism have really strong long-term memory skills. Mm -hmm. um, they're very like detail-oriented, mm -hmm. um, have really good like visual and concrete thinking. Um, some of my kiddos on my caseload have hyperlexia, so that's a strong ability um, with reading that's well surpassed what's expected for their age. And knowing that, you know, we use a lot of written communication in our sessions and yeah. things with words. So it's actually really powerful sometimes when you can understand, you know, yeah, where they're learning challenges, but also their strengths. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think these are all such great points for when we have to have that inevitable conversation with parents about the possibility. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you guys as SLPs do it more often um, than us OTs because you're trained to look for those social communication um, challenges. But I know that um, Liv had mentioned something to me once, if you don't mind me sharing. Yeah, you said that, sure. you know, in talking to parents, kind of remind them that autism is a spectrum mm -hmm. disorder. So your kids can fall anywhere on there. So it's not necessarily, um, you know, I mean, if they do get diagnosed, they could be on the higher end or wherever, but that it is like one, if you've met one kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism, yes. like that age old thing. Yeah. So don't use one kid as your as the example of what it might happen for your child. So just exactly. kind of keeping in mind. Um, can you guys both just to backtrack a little bit, talk a little bit to our listeners about um, why our kids with Down syndrome get a diagnosis later on oh, in life? Because yes. that I think is a piece that's kind of a bit you know, it's missing in the conversation. In it yep, is wrapped it is. in mystery and it affects funding because at least in BC, if you get a diagnosis before the age of six, you do get relatively way more funding mm -hmm. than after. But to either of you are in combination, I would love if you guys could just tell our listeners a little bit about why it is hard for them to get a diagnosis early. Absolutely. Yeah. So it kind of comes back to this developmental sequence and profile of learning 
And we know that kids with Down syndrome, they go through the typical developmental sequence, but at a slower rate. Mm -hmm. So often what happens is when a kid is, let's say, two, if they're going to just have autism, it's already usually fairly clear. But our students here who have Down syndrome who are two are not functioning necessarily at a typically developing two-year-old level yet. Mm -hmm. So their chronological age is two where we would hope to be making that diagnosis, but their functional age and their skill level is not at a two-year-old stage yet. So what tends to happen then is people are unsure and they're kind of waiting to see is there going to be a development in some skills but not other skills Mm -hmm. that would warrant us needing to make an assessment referral if that makes any sense and the age for a dual diagnosis is much much older i think the average age was something like 14. it was shocking because the average age for a single diagnosis of autism is like two and a half yeah. But it is hard to unpick it and it's misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are definitely still people who think that it can't happen. And if that person is your pediatrician, yeah. then you get this misinformation yeah. and you stop looking. And there's some of that diagnostic overshadowing too, because oh, yeah. a lot of it is like explained away with, oh, it's a Down syndrome thing, not an autism thing. Oh, like yes. <laughs> I know I've heard that from a get lot me of parents. Really too. fired up. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Diagnostic overshadowing means using one diagnosis to sort of explain away Mm -hmm. things that are happening that actually aren't relevant Mm -hmm. to that diagnosis. So if you're seeing, you know, somebody using hand as a tool and they don't acknowledge when somebody comes in a room and they only speak in whole sentences, maybe from movies, but they have Down syndrome, diagnostic overshadowing in that case would be like, well, they have Down syndrome, so we expect things to be different. Yeah. Where it's just missing yes. critical analysis, essentially. Um, yeah. Causes a lot of big problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think other reasons why the assessment might be late is that families are coping with the first diagnosis mm-hmm. still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when we make, when we have that conversation, and it's a hard one, don't get me wrong, um, with a family, they're not ready to hear that yeah. information necessarily, so they might not be willing or ready to put their name on that assessment list yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, and I understand that because mm, any diagnosis is hard. For sure. I think yeah. that's the thing, exactly. right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. families will come to terms with it at their own stage yeah. and their own time, and often they regrieve. You know, mm-hmm. they think things are going great. And then their kid starts in elementary school and they realize this profound sort of differentness in skill levels between their child and their hopes and expectations for their child and the rest of the kid's yeah, class. And, just, yeah. and that grief process changes, right? just happens yeah. again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if that's around the same time that you're also saying, hey, we think an autism assessment's a good idea, it's just too much. Yeah. So it kind of gets push back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that happens too sometimes. Yeah. Do you think there's any other major reasons for it being so late? I think, <sighs> yeah, basically those things, like just not kind of picking up on the right symptoms mm-hmm. and signs. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and like you said, because the development is slower, um, yeah, we might see these kind of signs at a different time in mm-hmm. their life, at mm-hmm. their, a different chronolo- chronological chronological age. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think like Olivia had mentioned earlier that, you know, there is a high incidence of a dual diagnosis so of Down syndrome and autism. So perhaps parents aren't 
necessarily aware that it does co-occur at a high totally. so they're not even really looking yeah. for something mm-hmm. like that right so mm-hmm. i think that mm-hmm. in part would you agree yes. would possibly be a reason as well oh totally yeah. and that brings to mind another thing which is that <clears throat> for families with kids with down syndrome they probably know a few other kids with down syndrome but not tons mm-hmm. and here we see tons so we have kind of an eye for this kind of thing yeah. Yeah. but you know let's say you know three other little kids with down syndrome around the same age as your kid mm-hmm. and you think your own kid is kind of quirky and cute yeah. which is absolutely true 100 <laughs> percent um but you might not recognize it yeah. as no quirky right? cute yeah. and a little bit different exactly than these yeah. other kids yeah. right there's not enough of a comparison group exactly yeah. that's yeah. a really good point yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So thank you again for both both of you for kind of just kind of going off uh, topic a little bit there, but really giving our listeners a good picture um, of, of what the whole process is about. So Liv, like what changes from a therapy perspective um, would you see for a student with a dual diagnosis? Yeah, um, so I'm going to answer this question as best as I can um, and with what I think is most relevant, but please let me know if I missed anything or if I'm not getting at what you're Mm -hmm. um, wanting for this question. So um, in terms of what changes from a therapy perspective when a student has a dual diagnosis, um, so we did already talk about a little bit of like funding and support. So usually what I find with um, my kiddos with a dual diagnosis is they have access to a larger supportive interdisciplinary team. So Mm -hmm. um, we collaborate more with, you know, behavior consultants, interventionists, um, music therapists, um, you know, PTs, we all kind of, yeah, we have to collaborate um, with more um, professionals, which is fantastic with, um, yeah, meeting the needs of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so that definitely uh, changes. Um, I would also say, like, sometimes our therapy approaches. So there's comprehensive, like, intervention programs out there mm-hmm. that families can choose to utilize. Um, like applied behavior analysis mm-hmm. or ABA we hear or mm-hmm. you know anything from that to social pragmatic developmental approaches and then there's like everything in between um, so there's specific kind of targeted advent- interventions out there for kids with um, autism mm-hmm. um, a few you know we use here are things like more than words like mm-hmm. the Hannon programs um, social thinking um, PECS reference and regulate um, so these programs are specific and targeted for the autism population. So I find, you know, as a therapist, I tend to pull a lot more from these programs yep. for uh, kids with a dual diagnosis. Um, and it's also beneficial in knowing, you know, what sorts of treatment programs are out there that have evidence behind them um, that would be beneficial for these specific students. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, like, something else that I find changes is, you know, implementing specific strategies for autism are super important. So things like using visuals, Mm -hmm. um, schedules with them, uh, work systems, and I can, Mm -hmm. yeah, let me know if you want me to elaborate on that. I'm a big fan of work systems. I'm a huge fan, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Makes all the difference. Yeah. Um, You know, video modeling or social stories Mm -hmm. are, you know, were originally created for this population. So I find I, you know, they work with our kiddos with um, Down syndrome, but really for our dual, you know, diagnosed um, families, they really benefit from these tools, Mm -hmm. I find. Mm-hmm. Um, to be set up for success. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times for kids with a single diagnosis of Down syndrome, you can kind of like scrape by without using visuals and things that we tell people to use all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it's like you can kind of you can kind of manage it. It would be better 
Yep. And your kid would have an easier time if you used visuals, but、mm-hmm. you can make it. And if your kid has a dual diagnosis, it's like a non-starter. You gotta,、yeah. you gotta、yeah. do it.、Yeah. Um, and it makes just a huge difference to the child's ability to participate、yeah. and stay calm. And you know, even for the sort of family health, I would say,、yeah. and just stress levels yeah. Yeah. and frustration management. The strategies、mm-hmm. that we talk about. Are are essential. Let's talk a little bit about work systems、yeah. in case people don't know about、mm-hmm. that because that is that is right on the money. We、yeah, love it totally.、Yeah. I love work systems. <laughs>、um, so all this means is like prior to a task,、um, you give very clear expectations about what they're going to do, how many they need to do, when they're done, and what's coming next.、Mm-hmm. And usually, I do this in a visual way. So like for instance, like I'm thinking of a kid right now. I use work systems for.、Um, we're working on pretend play.、Um, you know, I tell him with a visual, it's puppet time, and what's going to happen afterwards. And he has to. I line up, you know, five foods on the table so he can visually see this、mm-hmm. countdown of how many things he needs to feed the puppet before we're done. And that makes a world of a difference rather than me not using any visuals and just being like, we're going to play with a puppet,、yeah. <laughs> or we're going to do five. Yes, like even that. The concept that. of five is not. Yeah, very it's really concrete them, yeah. to、mm-hmm. yeah give a visual、mm-hmm. kind of system. Yeah, you know, it helps with compliance because it reduces that anxiety for the student,、um, and then it allows them to feel. Successful because we completed that task. Yeah,、mm-hmm. um, yeah. 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 I highly recommend looking、yeah. into it. Yeah, more. And it is honestly very simple to execute. You just have to, like, from an OT perspective, if I'm working on, let's say, scissor skills, and I have five things that a student needs to cut, I will have those five things out there so they have that concrete、mm-hmm. idea of, like, okay, Hina expects me to do these five things, and then. You know, finish them, put them in a box. That means you're all done. And then on the schedule, what's next? So when they see, I think Marla, you talked a little bit about like they like to see objects kind of disappearing, like or、yep. kind of going into things. Yeah. So yep, they're seeing、okay. from a visual perspective that this is complete, because now that five that was on the table is not there anymore.、Mm-hmm. So that it really works wonders. It does for it does. for some of those more the challenging tasks. And I think it's 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 really respectful of our students. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Because certainly students with a dual diagnosis. Have a really what I would call a variable presentation day to day. So some、mm-hmm. days are good and some days are much harder. And what I think happens often is when it's a good day, people try and sneak in extra practice. And、yes. our guys do not like that.、Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you're、yeah. calm today. Okay, we're going to do three times as much work. Yeah. And by using work systems, we're showing that we're not going to、mm-hmm. make the task harder. Yes. Yeah. Secretly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, you're going to your do your five. Yeah, yeah、exactly. holding up your end of the bargain,、exactly. basically. Yeah. yeah, which means they're going to be more likely to participate with you the next time. Yeah, yeah. like if you, like in your example, Liv, if you give them just a bowl full of plastic food to feed a puppet. Oh yeah, no. That's like no, 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 <laughs> because and and it and to be, to think, I mean, if you think about it, it's like that anticipatory anxiety. They're like, well, I don't know when this is going to be over. You could put more food in that bowl once、mm-hmm. it's done, right?、Yeah. So once、mm-hmm. it's very clear cut、yeah. on the table. Yeah. That that trust gets built, and they understand、yes. the expectations. And、that's、I think that、key. is such a key word you used, Liv, earlier. That the expectations need to be there because,、yeah. 
as we know, our kids with Down syndrome and autism can't anticipate what's going to happen in the future. They can't, they don't have that visual representation of, yep. oh, you know, so it has to be very concrete. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And like right. you said, that builds trust because for we're, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Holding up what we're going to do. They know exactly what is expected. Mm-hmm. And they can feel good about what they've yeah. done and, yeah. the, and yeah. what they've learned. And they're more likely to do it again the next time because exactly. they know that you're not, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. we always yeah. like keep an eye to the future. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never worth it to us to do a lot of work one day if they're never going to want to do it with us again. Absolutely. So I would much rather do five, Mm -hmm. keep it successful, and know that the kid's going to come back to me next week and do five again, than do ten and then never get to do puppets again. again. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, Liv, you were mentioning some really great uh, therapy interventions that we could do, like, you know, some of the ones that you mentioned were routines and visuals. Mm. Why are those so important as, you know, universally helpful tools for our kiddos with a dual diagnosis? That's a really good question. Um, I think routine can be a really powerful tool in helping students deal with this, like, uncertainty that's Mm -hmm. inevitable in their day. Mm -hmm. I think it's a universal truth that we all like to know what's going to happen next. As we learned with COVID. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) definitely a lesson learned with COVID. Especially during COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sure parents can attest that during COVID, when your routine gets, you know, upside down suddenly, Mm -hmm. how important it was to then establish a routine um, and maintain it in your home. So, um, you know, like we mentioned, individuals with autism and Down syndrome like routine, they like sameness, which brings about, you know, comfort for them, keeps mm-hmm. them well-regulated if they know ahead of time what's going to happen in their day. Um, I think it can also be a great way for us to build in flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so taking them through the changes that they'll come to understand mm-hmm. ahead of time, um, that things can be the same but different. You know, So maybe on Mondays we have swimming, um, but then maybe it's canceled the following week and we have something else. But if we build that in our schedule, you know, we give our child forewarning beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it can help with building and accepting that difference um, that's in their routine. You know, we all like to know what's what's happening next um, and understand what's expected of us. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also, I think, you can get buy-in with less preferred activities with yeah, routines and that's schedules. That's a great point. Yeah. Totally. yeah mm-hmm. So, like, if we have something more rewarding, if it follows something that's, um, you know, non-preferred yeah. <laughs> activity, yeah, yeah. then you know they know that this non-preferred activity is not going to last forever, that there is something to look forward to and there's something yeah, rewarding coming um, later. So I think that routines and schedules can really benefit mm-hmm. our students. Um, what was the other one you mentioned? What about visuals? Visuals, I mean, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> right. all talk about visuals all oh, the time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do yeah. not underestimate visuals. Yes. Um, they're, yeah, I would say they're extremely important for a number of reasons. Um, you know, we know individuals with Down syndrome and autism have strengths in their visual processing as opposed mm-hmm. to auditory processing. So visual supports work well as a way to communicate things in a very concrete way for them um, and helps their understanding when visuals are accompanied with, you know, words and directions. So if I'm giving a direction to a student in a classroom, I might pair it with, you know, a visual of what they're supposed to do, you know, maybe first put your backpack in the locker and, you you know, backpack first and then locker Mm -hmm. makes a world of a difference um, rather than just verbally saying it. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, not only for their understanding, but it also can help support difficulties in, I think, their expression. Um, so helps them better communicate with others if they have an alternate way to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in visuals, when we talk about it, I should clarify, like, we mean, you know, real objects. They could be the photos, drawings, um, words, including sign language. We, you know, it's a visual language. Um, so this can really be a way for them to supplement their verbal speech and language. Mm-hmm. Um, I give the example of, you know, sometimes we ask our students a lot, you know, what did you do today? Yeah. Um, and it seems like a simple question, but it's actually really complex because not only do you have to, you know, have the memory to recall what you did in the day, but you have to understand the question. You have to have the language to express mm-hmm. it. Um, but I bet you know if we give that student like a picture of what they did in the day, or maybe their visual schedule to yeah. help them express it, um, you know they would. It would be um, easier for them to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, don't underestimate the power of yes. visuals. I <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So when you talk about routines and setting schedules, ideally those are visual versions, not just telling your kid we're going to do this, we're going to do this, yes. and then we're going to go swimming. Yeah. Um, however, what that looks like for your individual kid might be very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Depending on the child, some children are great readers. And they would be able to read sort of the key words, Mm -hmm. school, snack, swimming, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Some children are not at that stage yet and might need drawings or even photos. And if you're wondering about where to start with doing a visual schedule, I typically recommend photos. They're the most concrete and yet small enough and easy to carry around. Mm -hmm. The actual object Mm -hmm. as close as possible, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it's school, then snack, then swimming, then you take a picture of the student's actual desk or teacher or both, mm-hmm. and then a picture of one of the, your kid's generic snacks. It doesn't have to be exact, it's representing snack time. Exactly. And then a picture of a pool or photo of a pool to be really clear. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's too challenging for a student and then you need to use a physical object yeah. to represent it and yes. that's that's possible too. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit more challenging to carry around with you and implement but it's doable. I would recommend getting support from an SLP if you mm-hmm. feel like you need to start up mm-hmm. a system like that but it does help and it certainly helps with anxiety. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. So um, just wanted to end our, our podcast with just this last question that I think is really important as well. We've had questions from families recently about treatment for kids with a dual diagnosis. And from your perspective, are there any priorities, priority areas that you would like to start with? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we need to set up our kiddos for success from the beginning. Yep. Um, so in order to engage a child with autism and Down syndrome, I think our environment needs to be free of distractions mm-hmm. um, so they can be well-regulated and remain focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I usually start with like, you know, regulation and sensory needs. Yep. If a child comes into our session and they're dysregulated, you know, that tells me we got to get you regulated mm-hmm. first. Um, And, you know, they're called sensory needs for a reason. It's something a child needs in order to learn. That's why it's so important, Hina, to (laughs) have an OT on your team who can provide those insights on how to remain well-regulated, you know, what works for this student um, in order for them to feel, you know, safe and feel calm. Um, So I think, 
what I like to start with is, yeah, are they well regulated mm -hmm. and how do we well regulate the student in order to learn? Um, and then from an SLP kind of perspective, more specifically, um, I always kind of think about like, how does your child attend and, and listen to others? So we talk briefly about joint attention and social referencing. Um, and honestly, communication begins with this kind of shared attention and yeah. engagement. So when a child doesn't notice, you know, that you're trying to get him or her to include you or share an experience with them, there's not real much interaction going on between you two or there's not much learning happening in those moments. Yeah. So when a child with autism and Down syndrome has difficulty, you know, attending to me, I like to start with a goal around attention mm -hmm. and around referencing. Um, you know, and people with autism have the capacity to learn these skills, um, meaning that the hardware is there. They just need the input and the practice with it. Yeah. Um, and if we meet them where they're at with that and give them op opportunities to practice, we get better outputs. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I like to start with, you know, attention or referencing. Um, and when I kind of try to explain this to families and why it's so important, because I know sometimes it feels like we're going back to the basics. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if we start with attention and referencing, this leads to better listening. Mm -hmm. Listening leads to understanding language because over time with consistent listening and attending to what you're saying, you know, our students learn to understand what you're saying and mm -hmm. they start to link that meaning to your yeah. words. Um, and then understanding language leads to then using language and talking. Um, so everything kind of falls into place, I think, when you have these foundational skills of attending and referencing other people. Um, and I like to think of it as like a pyramid that you build on. Um, I had a student uh, this past block where, yeah, our goal was, you know, referencing me more often with different people, mm -hmm. looking at me faster mm -hmm. for longer. Um, and it was awesome because by the end of the language block, even even though our goal wasn't language, his his language did take off. So mm -hmm. he yep. understood way more. Yep. He was then starting to use some of those words yep. spontaneously. Um, so there is a correlation between, you know, consistent attention and referencing people more that will lead to better results for language yeah. skills. Totally. Um, yeah, that's totally something we see that children with better attention uh, show better, you know, language outcomes. Absolutely. Um, so when your therapist talks about, you know, the importance of eye contact or wanting to work on attention, um, truly don't underestimate the power of, yeah, referencing and, yeah. and attention. Mm -hmm. I feel like it falls into place once you have that kind of strong foundation. 100%, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you can kind of imagine, for some reason, the peanuts yeah. school comes to mind, you know, where it's like a wah, 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 wah in the background. <laughs> and it sort of changes from that to, oh, that's directed to me. Yes. And like, I'm going to, I can learn from mm -hmm. what's going on around me yes. in my environment. And that's the skill that mm -hmm. we're trying to teach. Because yes. if your child has poor or underdeveloped social referencing skill, I can be there signing up a storm, doing exactly. all kinds of things. But if they don't know that they're supposed to learn that learn from me yeah. then exactly. yeah. they are not going to learn from yeah. me you know and it's yeah. wasting our time so yeah. we need those sort of like roots of the communication tree before yes. we can pick those fruits of words exactly oh, nicely put oh, and a lot you. of our kids i think yeah they need to like learn to look before they yes. can look yeah. to learn like Absolutely. i love that That's quote great from it. like yeah. reference and regulate um yeah. because yeah you have to attend to in order to learn about the world, you have to attend to others that are trying mm -hmm. to teach you about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's great. That's
That's a huge one. And regulating. So we've talked a lot mm. about being regulated and dysregulated. Could you, Hina, this is an OT specialty. Um, <laughs> could you give us the just a short rundown of what that even what that means? Sure. So for regulation, it, you have to kind of see your child's sensory processing, how they're taking in the information from the environment and processing it. Um, if, for example, we have a kiddo with a dual diagnosis that comes right after their school for a therapy session, um, they can be dysregulated because of a variety of reasons. It could be fatigue from having a long day at school, the traffic on the way here, having to come up and see Hina, even if you don't want to that particular day because mm-hmm. you're tired. There's a host of reasons why um, they're body is not ready to it's not at its like balanced optimum level to learn so as ot's and slps if we kind of see that and we know our students well enough then we kind of work on getting their body at that equalized state so that they can attend and learn and to reg i mean to actually provide their regulation it's very different for each kid because each Mm -hmm. kid has their own sensory profile um, and that's something that as OTs that we can kind of help um, help you with. But that regulation piece is really important. And I think regulation has kind of become very common even in the classroom. So a yeah. lot of teachers and SEAs are really working on those kind of things for their kids. But at the end of the day, it's super important because um, you need to be able to have your body at, at a state where you can look and learn and then kind of go for what Liv was saying. Like then, you know, you kind of... Then you add your new skills. Have your new skills. Yeah. yeah so... so dysregulated looks like not able to sit down, not able to come join you in your room, might be screaming, might be crying, might be very distracted by things in the environment. Might be moving and flapping and just uh, even, even I've had some students that will come and sit at the table but are distracted by every other visual stimulus in the room and are just not able to see me. So it definitely looks different for each kid totally but if they're not able to attend to you eye contact is a great way to to gauge that for sure but not all of our kids um will necessarily at least our kids with autism won't always eye contact isn't always a measurement of attention right Mm -hmm. um but once you get to know your kids you can tell when they're able when they're ready to learn and when they're not Mm -hmm. and then our job is to get them to that point where their nervous system is at that optimum level where they've, all their sensory needs are met and then now they can focus and learn the new mm-hmm. skill that they need. Mm-hmm. 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 And it's kind of like, I guess, being distracted by your body, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wh- how you yeah. can Internal describe. sensations, external yeah. sensations. There's a lot going mm-hmm. on in terms of sensory processing. They might be hungry, but they're not able to tell you that. They might be tired. Mm-hmm. They might be getting a cold or feeling pain. Mm-hmm. host of reasons that can dysregulate. I've had students that have been dysregulated. They've been, had a great time coming out of school. There was a traffic accident on the way and they were stuck in traffic. That was the trigger enough to them become dysregulated. And then things just kind of went downhill from there when they got to the session. Yep. So it's my job as an OT to kind of you know, get that information from the parents sometimes. I find this super helpful. Like yes. how did their day go at school? How was their night the night before? Um, to kind of get that big picture of their regulation and then kind of go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you as a, as a parent or supporter think about it, like there was just a ginormous truck that drove past us, mm-hmm. but think about how hard it is yeah. to focus and work when there's construction going on outside your window and something yeah. in the environment is distracting you so much that you can't even think. And it's yeah. kind of that kind of yeah. or you're issue. really hungry and you can't yeah. focus so yeah. Yeah. or you're like dysregulated moments on. totally it's right. just that for us sometimes it's a bit easier to either wait it out 
or come up with a tool on our own. Exactly. But for our kiddos, we really do need to help, not necessarily always provide it to them, but teach them to how recognize to, it yes. first and then how they can you know, take yep. care of it for themselves and become more independent. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you for explaining Anytime. that to everybody. Yeah. For sure. Well, um, yeah. Liv, it's been a huge pleasure to talk to you today. I think we've shared a lot of information with families out there who are hopefully feeling just a wee bit less alone. Yeah, I think, and as Liv mentioned earlier, we do have a tab on our DSRF mm -hmm. website. Mm -hmm. um, and Liv actually has created this wonderful graphic kind of showing you know the characteristics of Down syndrome and autism and what to look for when they intersect, which she's continually updating. So definitely check our website out. We'll put a link on the episode web show page. And mm -hmm. yeah, sounds yeah. great. Thank you so much. We really appreciate oh, it because this was super great and yeah. helpful for everybody. So. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Great. Fantastic. Next week on The Lowdown, a Down syndrome podcast. You can model consent and touch and types of touch within your family, within the people in your lives mm -hmm. from birth as well. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, you're saying bye to grandma. Do you want to give them a hug or do you want to give them a kiss? Do you want to just say goodbye? Mm -hmm. And leaving that up to them, not being like, go kiss them. You know, a lot of our folks with Down syndrome are super affectionate, but you have to teach them that the other person has to want it too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have to want it too. It's an equal... Yes. Thing so sure. those types of conversations they start as soon as you're talking yeah. to somebody and then you're modeling it as well. The lowdown, the Down syndrome podcast is a production of Down Stone Research Foundation. Learn more at dsof.org and join conversation at dsof Canada on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The lowdown is hosted by Marla Foden and Hannah Mahmood. And it's produced by Glenn Hughes. The Lowdown theme music and George Dew was written and recorded by Rick Scott. <laughs>